morning as we get started, I, I'd like to be able to help us really picture what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 37. And so um, to that end, can I ask you just a few questions? If they're too personal, you don't have to answer. Uh, let me just ask to begin with, how many of you are under 40? I can't raise my hand. Okay. All right. We've got some, some that are. How many are under 30? Okay. There's a few under 30. How many are under 20? Okay. Uh, Lyle's off now. Okay. Under 20. We've got, uh, let's see, who was who under 20? Okay. Let me catch it. All right. A few under 20. Uh, how many are 19? 18? Any 18 year olds? You got one 18-year-old, 17. We got one 17-year-old. But I know that Benjamin was 17 until this week. So I'm going to count him as 17. And um, I'm going to ask these two men to come up here because I want to have you see what it looks like to be 17. Some of us have a hard time remembering what it was like to be 17. <laughs> come on up, guys. If you grab that mic, I want to talk to you about being 17, because being 17 is really important to our story this morning, and, uh, and you know, there's a lot at play when you're 17. I was trying to think where I was when I was 17. It's a long time ago, and, and you know, you have to think, oh yeah, that's right, I was about a senior in high school, and a lot's changed since then. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, and so I'd, I'd like to just ask you guys a couple of questions um, about 17. And uh, I, here's the first one, and I'd like you both to answer it. Just share with us. It's, I, by the way, I didn't tell them what I was going to ask them. I did tell them that I was going to talk to them. Did not tell them what I was going to ask them. So this is truly whatever they happen to think. They don't know what I'm going to ask. Here, here goes the first one. Ready for this? You're going to be the first one to answer, Benjamin, huh? Okay. Jeb says he's not ready. Well, tough. <laughs> All right. Here it is. What kind of things do you dream about doing in the future? You're 17. Well, 18, but barely. Tell me what kind of things you dream about doing in the future. Lots of things. I mean, I feel like my life's before me, kind of. In some ways. I mean, it could end, but... That sounds about right. Do you guys remember when that... Do you still remember that? When your life was before you? <laughs> All right. Okay, so any specifics? Yeah, I'm going into uh, working on getting my pilot's license and all those ratings to become a missionary pilot at this point. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, at 17. Jeb, how about you? I want to be an elder in the church. Okay. Awesome. That's terrific. Elder in the church. And um, so, so talk to me about what you think the process is going to be like. Jeb, you start. I mean, there's, that's a pretty lofty goal. It's a big thing in God's book. So what do you think the process is going to entail as you make steps toward accomplishing that goal? Well, typically you have to go to school to learn to be a pastor. Okay. But I think it's uh, more important to learn from someone who already is a pastor. Be mentored in that way. So. Okay. All right, and there's probably going to be a number of things that are going to happen that right now you can't see that are going to take place in that process. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Benjamin, tell me a little bit about the process for you, where you're headed. Yeah, so right, there's a lot of training that goes into it, a lot of learning how to fly airplanes in all sorts of different situations and all that. Um, and there's just a lot for being a missionary pilot. There, you have to have a lot of maturity, so it's it's a long-term goal. It's years and years in the future, at least. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, and there's a lot, a lot of, you know, I mean, thinking of being an elder in a church, missionary pilots are almost sometimes the missionary to the missionary out there on the field. So you better be able to answer some tough questions, I'm going to guess. So let me ask you a question. One more question here. 
maybe, maybe one of several more. Uh, so what do you think you're going to be in 20 years? Where are you going to live? What are you going to be doing? What do you think your life's going to look like in 20 years? So 20 years, by the way, let's just, can we be really personal? Who's 37? You don't have to raise your hand, especially if you're Who is? Do you remember being 17? Yeah. <laughs> and yet it was 20 years ago, right? So OK, 37, 20 years ago. So you're going to be Raul's age. Wow. And, and I'm. <laughs> I told you it was unrehearsed. <laughs> I didn't put him up to that, Raul. <laughs> but hey, I mean, so Raul, you, you remember being 17, but just stop for a moment. I'm going to get back to you. So what did you think you wanted to do when you were 17? I don't know. I wish that I was a young man. Did you have goals and visions and dreams of where you wanted to go? Yeah, I wanted to be an engineer. OK, an engineer. And are you an engineer? Things change sometimes over the course of 20 years, don't they? Sometimes the path we thought we were pursuing isn't really the end path at all. And, I didn't know the Lord. and you didn't know the Lord, but God has been very merciful and brought you to him and, and done something far better than being an engineer. So, guys, 20 years. You're going to be Raul's age. What do you think you're going to be doing? I hope to be on the mission field, but, I mean, who knows? So, mm -hmm. a long, way, mm -hmm. long ways out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. OK, Jeb? Twenty years. Um, well, there's pretty much churches everywhere, so it, <laughs> I could be anywhere, just in a church. I yeah. don't know. And wherever there aren't, there sure need to be churches, right? So you yeah. could be even one of those places, maybe one of those hard-to-reach places. So when I was 17, I was, I was a senior in high school, and I had my life before me, too. And I thought I knew where I was going. But by the time I reached 37, when I was Raul's age, I got to thinking about this. I had six kids. I, uh, from a nine-year-old to a two-year-old, I just bought a house over here on North Star Road about three years before. Uh, we were fighting back the wilderness, we thought, and uh, trying to create some kind of a garden. We were up to our eyeballs in work in this stained and leaded glass business that I had intended to do as tent making, but then I found that all my time was going to making tents and not necessarily to, um, to the ministry that I had thought I was headed toward. You know, it was, uh, I, I had a parish, but it was an eight-person parish, me and seven others. And that was pretty much where I was at at 37, and it was a lot different than what I had anticipated at 17. So I'm going to say to you guys and to all of us as we launch this morning into the story of Joseph, life is probably going to take some different turns. And it's not like life in some sort of fatalistic sort of a way, but that God has plans that are probably different than we anticipate. And so this morning, you see what it's like to be 17. You remember a little bit about what it's like to be 17. That's Joseph this morning, Genesis chapter 37. Thanks, gentlemen. There was a long time between the time that God promised Abraham this will be and the time when it would yet be fulfilled. And that's often the way that it is with God's promise. In the case of Joseph, he had 20 years to wait. From 20, from 17 to 37, to see the fulfillment, the first fulfillment of his dream. And so he had to wait. It says that Jacob kept this saying in mind. He remembered it. Now, 
it's, it's interesting because there's debate about what Joseph should or should not have said and whether or not it was actually a godly thing for Joseph to have said this. Was he, in fact, truly an arrogant 17-year-old? And interestingly, the scriptures are pretty much silent. We don't have any commentary in the Bible on whether or not Joseph should have done this. But we have several reasons why it was very important that it was done. Now, this isn't a statement so much on Joseph's character, again, on which the Bible is completely silent, as it is a statement on why it's so important that Jacob, in fact, did say it, whatever the character issues involved really were. And here's some of the reasons. There's probably more, but here's at least four of them. First of all, these statements of the dreams established the fact that God was at work in the chaotic and horrific events that were about to unfold. God was at work. This was his doing. What was about to take place was from his hand. And can I suggest that that's really where we've got to get right now for the things that are yet to unfold for our lives. Joseph's dreams being spoken made it clear that this was the hand of God at work. There's really nothing more reassuring than knowing that what I'm going through is the result of the hand of a sovereign and a loving God who's ordained that each thing that I experience is a part of his plan. Yeah, each thing that we experience is a part of his plan. Now, the plan may take longer than we thought, and it may have very different ramifications than we thought it would. 17 years old, Jeb and Benjamin, really we don't know where they're going to end up in 20 years. There's some big ideas, there's some great plans, there's some wonderful things we should aim for those things, there are goals that we should set and ways that we should get in the way with God, but ultimately in 20 years, I'm going to be curious to see. I hope I'm here to see it. What actually took place? What did God actually want to do? But we can be sure of this. We can be very sure that God is the one who is in charge of the blessed and the chaotic and the horrific events that will yet unfold in our lives. So it was very important that Joseph told his brothers and his father and his mother the dream that he had because it demonstrated very clearly God is in charge. But it did more than that. It, get this, this was actually a blessing. It galvanized the hatred of Joseph's brothers beginning the fulfillment of the dreams with their own hands. Do, do you see what happened? Look, look at here as we continue. In verse 12 it says, Brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. We're going to get to this portion in a minute. When they see Joseph, in verse 18, from afar, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said, verse 19, to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Joseph's dreams, Joseph was hated before, right? They already hated him. But the dreams that he dreamed galvanized their hatred of him in a unique and specific way and gave focus to all that hatred. You say, how is that a blessing? Because, believe it or not, Joseph's brothers began the process of fulfilling the dreams with their own hands by doing what they were about to do. If Joseph had just continued on in the land of Canaan, had shepherded his father's flocks, had taken care of the family matters that were going on, had tried to survive the hatred and animosity of his brothers in his own domestic territory, would this ever have happened? Would the great story of Joseph have ever occurred? Would the people have starved? We don't know. 
And God isn't the God of really what ifs. He had a plan and he was fulfilling it, but he used Joseph's dream and the statement of it to galvanize the hatred, to give a focal point to the hatred of his brothers so that they would begin the fulfillment of the dream with their own hands. Beyond that, these dreams provided the anchor for Joseph's soul as he waited for 20 plus years from the dream to the fulfillment of the dream. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 41 that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And you'll remember that Pharaoh, like Joseph, dreamed two times. And it says this in in Genesis 41, it says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God, and God himself will surely bring it about. Joseph dreamed two times. Can I ask you, what did that mean? It means that God has fixed the thing. And he will surely bring it about. Now, 20 years, it sure didn't look like that. We'll be walking through those times in Joseph's life as everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. As all the imaginations, all the dreams, all the hopes that he'd had as a 17-year-old young man looked like there was absolutely no way that they could even be possibly fulfilled. Think about it for a moment. What was Joseph's dream? His dream was that his family would one day come and bow down to him. Somehow he would be a ruler over them. Folks, he was a long way away. The family wasn't even there. And there was no prospect of them coming. How do you get this ruling over your brothers and even over your father and mother if they aren't there? It looked totally impossible. There was no way that this dream was ever going to come to pass. But, but Joseph never gave up. Because the thing was fixed by God and he himself, God, would surely bring it to pass. Do we know if Joseph did in fact think about these dreams over those 20 years? Yes, we do. Because when Joseph's brothers arrive on the scene, you know what it says? We're told the inside story of what Joseph thought. Kind of fun thing about the Bible. Sometimes it tells you not just the narrative of what was said, but what was actually thought. You know what Joseph thought when the brothers came? He remembered the dreams. So Joseph, his dreams provided for him this anchor for his soul that carried him through 20 years of impossibility from the dream to the fulfillment of that dream. And they served, get this, as a way out of suffering and showed the path through famine at the right time. So these very dreams were the path forward at the right time. That's how he then interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And because he could interpret Pharaoh's dreams, how he was handed the position of second in command in all the land of Egypt, the most powerful, wealthiest, militarily great nation in the then known world. They served as the way out. But they didn't just serve out as a way out for Joseph. And you'll find that Joseph reflects on this over and over through the continuation of his story, it was not just a way out for him like some selfish, I want to get my just desserts out of this difficulty, and finally I will wring justice from my persecutors. It was a way out for the persecutors. Yeah, it was a way out for the whole family, for those who stood against Joseph, for those who hated him. These dreams ultimately were the way out for them as well. So while it galvanized their hatred against him here, the very dreams 
that they so hated him for ultimately served the purpose of their own deliverance and salvation. Joseph is sent in verse 12 on a dangerous mission. His brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock near Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to them, Him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? Joseph answers, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, going to check on your brothers to see how the sheep are doing and how the brothers are doing doesn't really sound like a very significant or very dangerous mission. But I want to note for you a couple of specific things that make this a little different than it at first appears. First of all, do you remember what made Joseph so unpopular in the first place here in Genesis 37? What made him so unpopular with his brothers before the dreams? He was favorite son, so that's one strike against him. There was one more that specifically mentioned. Bad report of his brothers. Had this kind of thing happened before? Had dad maybe sent Joseph out on previous missions to check up on the bros and see how they're doing? Very possibly, we don't know, but he had brought a bad report previous to this, and it was the source of huge hatred. And so now Jacob's saying, go do it again. Go out there. Dad says, go out and check on him. Now, I think that it's a significant statement on the character of Joseph to the positive side, and on the character of the brothers to the negative side, that, jo that Jacob felt the need to do this. Remember, Jacob himself was an expert shepherd. You get a lot of history about that. Just prior to this, as he pastured his uncle Laban's flocks, and in pasturing his flocks, he managed them so well and so shrewdly that he ended up with the greater portion of the flock, and he became a very wealthy man in flocks and herds because of his incredibly expert shepherding. So he is sending Jacob out to check on his brothers. Joseph would thank you for that. Joseph was sent out by Jacob to check on his brothers because they might be mismanaging the flock. But that's going to put Joseph in a pretty dangerous situation, right? He's already hated. Now he's going far away, about two to three days' journey north to Shechem to find out how the brothers are doing. He's not within striking distance of dad's Fury, should something go wrong. But secondly, there's another issue. Where did he send him? To Shechem. Hmm, what else happened in Shechem not so long ago? You remember? Well, there was a situation when the daughter, Joseph's sister, went out to see the daughters of the land, it says. What she exactly was doing is... A bit of a question, but it didn't end up with good results. She ended up getting involved in an immoral relationship with a prince from Shechem. Yeah, she did, from Shechem. And the brothers got really mad about this. This was a very upsetting situation. It was, a, it was something that was wrong. It was terrible. And so they took their fury out in an astonishing way by killing. Longer story here by killing all the males of Shechem. Yeah, they wiped them out. Total annihilation. There were none left. And Jacob came back saying, you've made me to stink 
to the inhabitants of the land. That's where Joseph was being sent by his father. Go back to Shechem where your brothers are pasturing the flock and there check up on them and bring me a report. Boy, it's a doubly dangerous mission. It doesn't sound so tough at first, but it's a pretty significant thing. Now, there are reasons why this would have been something that Jacob really cared about. Um, Remember, again, first of all, he was an expert shepherd. And beyond that, the flocks in those days were money, right? That's really how he had made his money. This is a picture from Karamoja, Uganda. My daughter, Ella, took it. This is the area where my brother and his family are ministering. This is actually, you can see they're kind of in a fuzzy way in the middle You see what all those little white and black dots are? You know what they are? They're cattle. Why are they? Look at this. The people are less protected than the cattle. You see that? The cattle are on the inside. You know why? It's like the vault in the bank. Yeah, they put the cattle all the way into the inside innermost circle in this village in Karamoja because they're money. Yeah, we care about it because they're money. Here's Here's another picture of the same thing. You can see the cattle on the inside. These are thorn fences. They weave thorns together. hate to think of the people who have to do the weaving, but uh, they weave thorns together to make these thorn fences that no intruder, man or beast, can make it through because we're going to guard the vault. We're going to protect the cattle. We're going to care for those animals because they are our money. It was sort of similar, though in a very different context, for Jacob. These, these cattle were money to him. And so here's, here you can see where Joseph is being taken. He says, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock to this man in Shechem? And he went after his brothers, found them in Dothan. You see the little dotted line there coming up from Hebron? Hebron is where he started, right down here at the bottom. And then he travels about two to three days' journey up to Shechem, north. And then he's told, go on further to Dothan, because that's where we heard they were headed. So on further to Dothan, he goes about another day's journey. Now he's about, about three to four days' journey out. He's a long way from home. And he's far from protection of any kind from his father. So he's sent on this dangerous mission by his father to a place that is very difficult. Then we find in verse 18 this plot, this malicious plot of his brothers. They saw him from afar, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. We'll put those dreams to an end. They can't come to pass if he's dead. But when Reuben, verse 21, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him for the purpose of rescuing him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Significant, right? Because this was the robe that identified him as his father's favorite and possibly even as a prince. The robe of many colors or the robe of long sleeves that he wore And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now it's interesting and surprising that Reuben steps up to the plate at this particular moment. Because Reuben, well let's just say it honestly, he's not been a real good guy up to this point. 
In fact, you'll find that previously in chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben, the son of Leah, the less favorite wife, okay, just the not favorite wife, commits immorality with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, Rachel's servant. And it really made his father mad. In fact, so angry that in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, there's a commentary given, and it says this, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, beginning a genealogy which I will not read, for he was the firstborn, this is a parenthetical statement now, so now we're describing Reuben, he, was the, he, Reuben, was the firstborn because he defiled his father's couch. His birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not uh, be enrolled as the oldest son. Reuben couldn't be enrolled as the oldest son. That incident with Bilhah nixed him from the possibility of taking the birthright as the oldest son. And it was given to Joseph. It says, though Judah became strong and his bro- uh, among his brothers and a chief from him came from him, Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph because of this incident. But here all of a sudden, Reuben steps out on the right side of the game, and for whatever his personal faults, he begs for Joseph's life. Now, he wasn't extremely effective, but he was effective to the extent that at least they didn't just outright kill him. He says, hey, at least let's not do this ourselves. Throw him to some pit in the wilderness. And he had in his mind, again getting told the thoughts behind the narrative, by Moses, who's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's thinking, I'm going to come back and rescue him and deliver him back to Dad. We're going to take him back home again, and this fury will pass, and maybe I'll be the good guy. Maybe he hoped to get back on his father's good side after this incident with Bilhah. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Reuben actually steps up and stands on God's side in this particular situation. Here comes this dreamer we see. Come now, let us kill him. But Reuben steps in. But then, the diabolical deed. If you look here, beginning in verse 25, we read, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now let me note for you that Ishmaelites and Midianites are probably just two names for the same group of people. So you're going to hear Ishmaelites and Midianites think all one, all the same people. Saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Hmm. So Judah says, you know what, we do want to get rid of him, and we do want to essentially just knock out any possibility that these dreams could ever come to pass. Dad puts some stock in them, we think they're terrible, and can't imagine them actually coming to pass, but we're just going to make sure they can't. We don't want to kill him, I mean, after all, he is our brother, so let's sell him where he will never be able to fulfill the dreams, we won't even be in proximity to him, and his In fact, as far as we're concerned, it'll be like he's dead. Yeah, so we're going to sell him to these Ishmaelites, and they will take him away as a slave. It seems impossible that we could get to that level, that we could actually come to the place where we would say of our own flesh and blood, I hate you. But the Bible assures us that it's not. 
Not even for us. No, not for us. 1 John chapter 4 says very clearly in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen, has not seen. We see our brothers, and yet we can hate them. We can say, though, I love God whom I haven't seen, but we're liars if we don't love the people that God has put right in our own context, our family, our church, our neighborhood, our community. It's really possible. Whatever love for the, the brothers had for their father was somehow at this moment totally and utterly eclipsed by their hatred for Joseph, and they sold him as a slave. They didn't have to personally kill him, but they also didn't ever have to see him again. They could get rid of him once for all. But it doesn't end there because the sin multiplies. Now we've got a problem on our hands. How are we going to deal with telling dad what we did? And so, verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit, saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers, and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood they sent the robe of many colors or long sleeves and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, Jacob, identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. In comforting their father, they did all but the one thing that was needed. And that was to tell the truth. Sometimes it seems the one thing we cannot do is to actually acknowledge our sin and deal with it head on. To say, yes, this is actually what occurred and I, I was wrong, and I failed. Even Reuben, who steps up to the plate just a few verses before, at this moment says, no, I guess we're going to have to come up with some way to deal with the problem, and we certainly, of all things, can't tell Dad. So, they decide to add to their sin, lying. And it was a lie that tortured them for 20 years. 20 years of torture. How do we know that it tortured them? I want you to hear what it says further on in the text in Genesis. Genesis chapter 42. The brothers had been put in custody by Joseph at this point in time. Part of the story we're yet getting to. And they said to one another, as they've been brought out, now they're standing before Joseph. He's just brought them out of three days of prison. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Okay, you just saw Benjamin and Jeb up here. I want you to think. The Bible doesn't tell us in chapter 37, but it tells us in 42 that they didn't just throw him in a pit and there was kind of this clean transfer to the Ishmaelite traders and off he went to Egypt. No, no. 
Joseph is begging them. He's distressed in soul. No, please, no, no, don't send me to Egypt. He's begging them, he's pleading, and they say, no, off you go, take him. And they lived with a torture of having heard him, of having seen him for 20 years. Could I just ask you, who was more tortured? We know from the book of Psalms, in a commentary on Joseph's life, that he experienced the pain of fetters in his time in prison. It was painful. It was difficult. It was very hard. But who was really in prison for 20 years? Did I suggest that the brothers were in a prison of torment that they could never escape? And interestingly, as we trace Joseph's life through the book of Genesis, we'll find they never did really escape all the way to chapter 50. But Joseph, contrary to his brothers, lived as a free man. He was a free man in Egypt. He was a free man in Potiphar's house. He was a free man as ruler of the kingdom. He was a free man in his brother's hatred. He was a free man when it came to forgiving those who never did understand what it was that God had in mind. This morning, I'd like to suggest that we have that same opportunity. We have an opportunity to live as free men and women. No matter what our past, no matter what our difficulties, no matter the things that we've gone through, we have the chance to live as free people, regardless of what other people have done to us. People can do things to us, but people cannot take from us those things which are most important. Joseph had, in all of his sufferings, in all of his difficulties, the awareness that it was God who had sent him. And it was God who would bring him through. So he didn't grow bitter. That's the reason he didn't grow bitter. Who would he grow bitter against? It was grow bitter against God? Your sufferings, the people who have wronged you, are no less under the hand of God. It seems like they're the ones who are foisting the evil upon you. It seems like they're the ones who have done the wickedness to you that is unforgivable. And in fact, they have been the ones to do it. But can I tell you that God never somehow just blinked and it happened when he wasn't looking? This too is under the hand of God. As we look at Joseph's dream this morning, as we conclude here, we're assured that God's plan is bigger than what we can see. That his purposes will not fail. Joseph's dream reiterated twice, God will fulfill what he has said. What are the purposes he has for you? Well, most of us aren't 17 any longer. But what are the purposes he has for you? Where does he want to take you? Can anyone or anything foil that purpose if, in fact, God is in it? No, it can't. No one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul takes this to the greatest extreme in Romans chapter 8. And he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I 
am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the message to us. That's where we stand today. What is God's purpose for us? Well, he's got individual purposes for each one of us and things that he wants to do, things that we think he wants to do, things that we know he wants to do, and things that we don't understand how we're going to get from where we're at right now to what he wants to accomplish. But he will not fail his promise. One final thing I'd say this morning. It's easy to say, I think, at the conclusion of a chapter like Genesis 37, if I had a dream like Joseph's, I too would be able to say, I'll cling to that. I'll take that dream. That's God's dream. I can take that. At least I know for sure what God really wants from me. Can I suggest you have something better? That we have all of God's promises and we have them in black and white. Joseph didn't. Joseph did not have all those promises of God. He had a dream that happened two times. You have all the promises of God. We have all the promises of God which we can bank on and know for sure that God will do what he has said. What does he want to do for you? Bank on his promises. His love for you through Jesus, Romans chapter 8, will never fail, no matter height or depth or any other creature. He loves you and will do what he has promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Joseph dreamed and he told us about those dreams and that we can know that you will fulfill your purpose, your purpose for us, though it seems that everything and everyone stands against. Oh, Father, we beg for you to help us to believe you. We appeal that you would help us to understand even when we cannot see the end. Can't see the end but we can, in fact, see you. So we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.